I think it is all about diversity. And I think that is the real challenge for designers is that audiences are diverse. Data Stories is brought to you by Click, who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. That's qlik.de slash data stories. Hey everyone, this is Data Stories number 69. Hey Moritz, how's it going? <laughs> hey Enrico. Where are you? I'm actually in a German <laughs> castle, a Schloss. A Schloss. A Schloss Dachstuhl. Yeah, it's a place where yeah, mostly researchers, computer scientists can um, go for a week in a large group. We are like 40 people or something. And try to figure something out. And we're figuring something out here. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> ah, What's the secret. main topic? Ah, it's so secret. No, it's about um, data-driven storytelling. So as you know, it's one of my favorite topics. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, working a bit here on uh, identifying patterns for storytelling and taxonomies and talking about tools and workflows. Very nice. So... Um, I hope we can share some of the results on the web. So um, oh, yeah. we're here working on a pattern collection that should be quite interesting. We're trying to work them into cards that you can use while designing data stories. So it's good. Yeah. And everybody talks about data stories. Unfortunately, not the podcast, but like storytelling. But <laughs> yeah. uh, we're well, getting there. Yeah, we're getting yeah, there. We're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any PR is good PR, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. How about you? How do, how visualization literate do you feel today on a scale from one to ten? <laughs> I feel very literate. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an eleven. <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> so you spoiled it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, so today <laughs> we are going to talk about visualization literacy, which um, I think we have been mentioning a few times in the in the podcast already. And so we decided to organize our whole, uh, episode on that. Uh, so briefly, very briefly, what is visualization literacy? Is It's mostly about... Uh, um, learning how to read visualization and also how to create visualizations, quote unquote, um, correctly, I would say. So to talk about this topic, we invited um, quite a few people this time. I don't know if we ever had uh, three <laughs> guests at the same time in our show. So we have Andy Kirk from Visualizing Data. Hi, Andy. Good afternoon. Good evening. How are you doing? Uh, doing great. Good stuff. Then we have Helen Kennedy, who is a professor of digital society from University of Sheffield, who is working together with Andy on a research project on visualization literacy. Hi, Helen. Hello. And then we have Jeremy Boy, and I'm very happy to have Jeremy on the show because Jeremy is working with me at NYU School of Engineering. He's a postdoctoral scientist, and um, he has done a lot of interesting work in in visualization as a communication tool and some research work on visualization literacy. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, everyone. And thanks for the great introduction. <laughs> okay. So I will ask each of you to maybe briefly introduce yourself and tell um, 
a few more words about who you are, what you do, and maybe what is your background, and then we can move on to uh, specific projects uh, um, that you are that that you have on visualization literacy. Andy, you want to start? Sure. Yeah. So Andy Kirk, I'm a data visualization freelancer based in uh, in Leeds, in Yorkshire, and my role today is as a kind of contracted academic for um, for this seeing data project that we've been working on. So uh, obviously I get involved in all sorts of different aspects around kind of consultancy and teaching. And this was an opportunity that arose about two and a half years ago with Helen to uh, to have a chance to do some really fascinating research work. So yeah, it's been a real pleasure to to do some proper academic work this last 18 months, two years. Helen. Okay, so yeah, as you said, I'm Professor of Digital Society at the University of Sheffield. Um, I've been researching the digital for nearly 20 years, and I'm interested in um, ordinary people's engagements and how ordinary non-experts can be included in different ways, and that's taken me across a range of domains and has often involved working with um, digital media practitioners, thinking about how the digital products that get made can be inclusive. So I've done a lot of research around web design and web accessibility in the past, and I find myself now working in the field of data mining and data visualization. As, as there is more and more data around us, people need to find ways to live with data. And visualization is the main way that a lot of non-experts um, access or come across data. I know Jeremy's interested in that term, non-experts. I've already used it a couple of times. But that's where my interest comes in, how to kind of open up the world of data to ordinary people. Great. Jeremy? Um, yeah, so I am originally a graphic designer, so my formal training is in graphic design. And uh, I then did my PhD in information and communication sciences, where I worked a lot on typically engaging, so I call them casual audiences, but yeah, I'm happy to discuss this term of non-experts um, or everyday people, which I actually quite like. Um <laughs> What to say? So yeah, now I'm working with Enrico, as you mentioned, um, at NYU. And we're working with people in the School of Law on human rights, well, data visualization applications for human rights advocacy, which is a really, really interesting topic, obviously, with many various challenges, challenges, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So I would like to start directly from the Scene Data project. This is the project, um, Andy and Helen are working on. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what the project is about and maybe also about what kind of uh, results you are, you have produced so far? Yeah, so um, for me, the, the idea for the project started when I was working on another project, which was about how like public sector organizations like councils and museums are using or starting to experiment with social media data mining and we did some of that with them and produced some reports for them of the kind of things that we'd found which included some visualizations of what we'd found and we I found people saying oh yeah I want more of that kind of thing 
without even stopping to look um, at the visualizations. And it made me curious about the really sort of micro level moment when a person looks at a visualization and what happens at that moment. And at the same time, I was talking with um, William Allen from the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford about um visualization and, and the power that it might have. So we went along to a course of Andes and started talking to him about it. And he shared that curiosity around um, what what affects engagement, you know, what, what makes engagement effective and, and successful. Well, and again, you know, what happens at that moment when someone looks at a visualization and this kind of big question of do visualizations work? Are they doing the work that people hope that they are doing? And as luck would have it at that time, a call came out from one of the research councils in the UK for projects about big data. And it's Arts and Humanities Research Council. So they really liked the kind of visualization angle. So we, we got the money and, and the intention was to find out what factors in the kind of consumption process, the moment of looking at a visualization, affect how people engage with it, and also what factors in the production process affect how people engage with it. So some of the research has been looking at, for example, the conventions um, that are available to visualization designers and how they enable and also constrain, you know, what can then be visualized. But the bulk of the work has been focused on 10 focus groups with just under 50 participants where we showed them some pre-selected visualizations which we chose to to represent a range of chart types, degrees of um, interactivity, original source or location, subject matter, um, and etc. whether it was online or whether it was in print form and asked people to look at them ask them to kind of record what they saw, how they felt and what they learnt and then to talk about those things um, in a kind of group discussion afterwards. So we had some kind of interviews and other things um, either side of the focus groups, but the bulk of the research um, was the focus groups. And from that, we have extracted a number of factors that we think affect the process um, of engagement. Mm -hmm. So I don't and know if you want me. Can, can I ask one thing? Like, did you go into the study with like a certain hypothesis or like a certain idea of um, what you wanted to have confirmed or rejected, or was it more like you exposed people to graphics and then recorded, let's say, more exploratively how how they would react to them? Yeah, I, I think it was. Uh, I mean, I'm answering on behalf of Helen here, but I certainly went into it with a very open mind about what we could experience because mm -hmm. I think from my perspective going back to this uh, this kind of conflict of terminology as a I don't want to call myself an expert but somebody who's not a non-expert shall we say I have a, a certain <laughs> uh, kind of a tarnished view because I am so immersed in these things already that I don't have that kind of mm -hmm. that naive perspective that many non-experts ordinary everyday people do so the common people the common people yeah absolutely um <laughs> And so from my perspective, there were things I would expect to have seen as factors. There were things I would hope to have seen confirmed, but it was a purely qualitative study that was very much about giving people a chance to respond in whatever way they felt emotionally, um, 
in, in both emotionally but also in a much more kind of practical sense of what did they find interesting what did they mm-hmm. find in terms of insight so yeah it was something that we we were very open-minded about really and that's what okay. the yeah. methods were mm-hmm. d- designed to deliver so what were the main findings then like what, what were the, the the main things you found out mm. i mean i think we found out lots of things but if to answer this question of what affects engagement what what influences how people look at a visualization the, there's a handful of core things And none of this is kind of mind-blowing. None of it is surprising. But I think we do think it's important for maybe like the expectations of a visualization designer. Maybe Andy will say a little bit more about that if I just talk about the core things. So the subject matter matters. So, you, you know, you, you, you might as designers talk about techniques, but if someone's not interested in the subject matter they're unlikely to stay with a visualization and explore it the source or location matters so people if it's in someone's trusted media the newspaper they normally buy or the website they normally look at they're more likely to trust it and if not they're less likely to trust it there's a kind we we experienced a kind of overall distrust of the media trying to pull the wall over our eyes or sort of distort things but that actually broke down a bit um and there was this kind of difference between familiar and unfamiliar media people's beliefs and opinions mattered but not only in terms of liking something that confirms your beliefs and opinions sometimes it's people liked the experience of having beliefs challenged so for example um our case study was migration data and we worked with the migration observatory on that and some people were surprised at the high number of irish immigrants in the uk because they don't hit the headlines and they enjoyed the experience of having their kind of beliefs around that challenged A really important thing was whether people feel like they've got the time to look at a visualization. And I think this is because visualizations are still new. They appear in quite new forms. People aren't familiar with them. So they see it as work to have to make sense of and engage with the visualization. Um, so then there was, a, um, you know, people needed to feel confident in a range of skill areas. And this is, I think, where we come to sort of define what constitutes visualization literacy. So they, they needed to have the language skills. We had um, a couple a couple of East European community groups um, and who, who sort of brought up the issue of language skill. Even though we're talking about a visualization, they're obviously, obviously often framed in words. People needed to feel confident about their maths or statistical skills. They needed to feel confident about their visual literacy. And some people did and some people didn't. Some people felt confused visually and some people felt confused numerically. They had to have some basic computer skills. And it's something that came up um, with people that we interviewed after um, was this sort of need for critical thinking skills to, you know, that people, both both designers, but also participants said, We need to be able to see what perspective is being prioritized, what's been left out. So there was a kind of con- consensus there amongst some people that um, you needed to not just believe what was in front of you, but to kind of think beyond the visualization in front of you. So a really big, what I've, I've left the big one to last. Mm-hmm. And 
we found that emotions played a really big part in people's responses to visualizations and they had emotional responses to all of the things that I've talked about already to the subject matter, the source or location, the visual elements, but the data itself. You know, I, I can see from this visualization that knife crime in my area is going up and now I feel scared. Um, so yeah, the, I mean, this is something, um, you know, that we sort of, um, write about in some of our blog posts that what does it mean for teaching data literacy, statistical literacy and visualization literacy that emotions play such a big role in people's engagements with visualizations? Mm-hmm. I think that that's very exciting because this is matches well what we discussed in data storytelling. All these things you mentioned are really important there. And uh, also it's something that, that is very hard to talk about scientifically. But as you say, it's such a huge part of how um, people actually engage with information or experience information in real life settings, right? And um, a lot of the data visualization research, of course, has focused on exploration um, and analysis done by experts and here we have the total opposite i think it's very very exciting yeah. and great that yeah. you tackled that i mean one of the um one of the most kind of influential methods that we used in the focus groups was this technique called talking mats where we use this essentially this two by two grid to capture people's general assessments and obviously, obviously that's all it could be about the degree to which they liked or disliked the thing, the experience, the entire kind of engagement, and to what degree did they feel like they'd learned something or not learned something? Now, obviously, learn is not necessarily the best word because not every visualization has to teach you something new. It can confirm or reinforce what you already knew, but it was the language that people understood. It's the language that people kind of know how to make some very quick assessment about how they're feeling. And, and once again, in, in one of the blog posts that we wrote up about the project, we shared some of the the kind of scores that people gave for some of the projects that we use. And you can see the diversity of opinions. Whilst there are some that do have a sense of a, a general con- consensus, as it were, you can see the diversity of likes and dislikes and learnt and didn't learn. Um, I mean, obviously, in an ideal world, we would have had thousands of participants and we'd be able to <laughs> dive into the demographics and the characteristics of the people to try and tease out the reasons why. But as you say, Moritz, it's one of those things that it's it's not a quantifiable thing. It's not a, a scientific thing that a lot of people in the field are more comfortable with in terms of discussing and acknowledging. You know, things like appeal is such a, an ambiguous, elusive term, but it it's it's the reality and that's kind of what we've hopefully arrived at which is confirmation of these important human factors so one aspect that i'm i'm really interested in is um i think there are two things one is um whether people are able to recognize a given chart right even before being able to extract knowledge out of it, just being able to recognize, to, to know how to read the chart in the first place, right? I think that's, that's an interesting aspect. And the, and the second one, once you know how to read something, whether you are able to extract information correctly um, out of it, right? So I'm wondering, did you notice anything in your studies that is related to these two aspects? Like, is there anything that people... 
any kind of charts that people just didn't know how to interpret. And then I would be curious to hear what, what is the reaction there, mm. right? And second, whether you've been checking on whether people just don't extract the right information out of them. Because to me, these look like two very important aspects of, of visualization literacy. Mm. I mean, there was certainly, so just to give you a couple of examples of the projects that we expose people to, first of all, we had the classic stream graph, the ebb and flow of box office receipts from the New York Times, a very unusual graphic. Which is graphic. hard to use, which is exactly hard to right. use, right? <laughs> but it is accompanied with some good annotation assistance. It explains the colours, the bandings, the sizes. So it kind of gives you the assistance to kind of penetrate past that um, unfamiliarity with that chart type. There were some people who commented on still not being able to understand the significance of the colours, the significance of the up and downness of the chart, even though they are given the guidance. And I think that there's part of that which is the the patience that we as people set, tend to not have for having to learn something new, especially if we don't necessarily see the immediate payback of putting in those efforts to learn how to read it. Um, we had a, a kind of a Sankey diagram, a two-sided Sankey. Uh, this was a project from Scientific American looking at the consumption of water um, around the world and the usage of water. And, and once again, people were quite, quite confused how to kind of join the lines together because it wasn't interactive. So you had all these overlapping lines with with kind of you know kind of a relatively ambiguous Z sorting, and people did struggle to kind of make their way through that tangled web of of lines. Um, we had Moritz's and, and Co's um, Better Life Index, the flowers, totally uh, which isn't but really nice, <laughs> absolutely impenetrable, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but you know it's an unfamiliar prospect but the familiarity of the metaphor of the flower once again kind of gets you over that so i guess to answer your question in amongst this deluge of qualitative material we've got there were definitely comments about people succeeding with reading new charts struggling to read new charts struggling to read charts that we would have expected them to have no trouble with so once again there didn't seem to be any commonality in, in people because we don't really also know their their history before this with exposure to to different examples but yeah it's it's something that once again we would look to once again revisit all the qualitative material to find out more information but it's it certainly plays a part but there were so many other things that people talked about not necessarily always explicitly i didn't know how to read that chart i mean i think one of the things that andy's talking about is time um I think lots of chart types are unfamiliar to people. Um, but when they were given the time in our focus groups, they lasted two hours, the focus groups. The first half was looking at charts and the second half was talking about the experience. That on the whole, people um, did manage to make sense of it and did manage to extract information correctly, except there was one incidence in one focus group where people were quite young. They were young farmers. Um, that was a kind of collective group where they um, misunderstood some information in one of the visualizations that we showed them. Um, so I think people are, apart from the obvious bar chart and pie chart, generally unfamiliar with a lot of the visualization types that are out there, but given time, 
can generally make sense of them. Now, they might be put off by them. I think um, a lot of people were put off by the aesthetics of the ebb and flow. And so they didn't want to invest the time. So that that's a kind of emotional uh, kind of gut reaction. Some people who were more visually oriented were more compelled by the graphics and the visuals of, of ebb and flow. Um, so in answer to Enrico's questions, I think people can read charts and can extract information correctly given the time. And Andy was talking about, about the patient, people's patience, but it is a question of uh, we're talking generally about visualization shared in the media because that's generally where people who aren't experts dealing with data in their jobs come across them. And there is an, there is an expectation that media can be consumed quickly. And that's not the case with some kind of complex or deep mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. visualization. Can, can I just a couple of last oh, yeah, points? Sorry. sorry, sorry, just two last points. But one thing to make clear is that we didn't assess people's comprehension of what they were reading. We didn't say, what is the answer to this? Can you find out mm-hmm. which is bigger? Mm-hmm. It wasn't that level mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. quite mechanical observations. Uh, and secondly, and I think it's something that you've spoke about before, Enrico, about the idea that some people enjoy the task of a puzzle. They enjoy oh, the yeah, task absolutely. of trying to accomplish something that looks difficult and unusual. And obviously in the artificiality of a focus group, they were given that chance to to work through this unusual form to, to get to the other side, hopefully. So that was something that people you know, at times did mention in the comments. So this is a great time to take a little break and talk about our sponsor this week. Once again, Data Stories is brought to you by Click, who allow you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. And this week, the Click blog features a new blog post on data visualization maps and the literacy required to read and interpret them. It's called Here Be Dragons and presents a few really interesting non-standard maps. For instance, it features the wonderful Galpedas projection, it's an equal area projection that seems upside down. Um, so Africa is on top and Europe on bottom, and you're kind of confused by it. But of course, the Earth is a sphere, and in space, there is no right way up or no natural up and no natural down. But we are so used to our standard views of the world that this map suddenly is very intriguing and almost makes you a bit nervous when looking at it. The blog post also features Buckminster Fuller's brilliant Dimaxion maps. We see hand-drawn maps and in the end, even a physical stick map of um, tied together sticks representing shipping routes uh, in the Marshall Islands. And it closes with these two really good questions. And the one thing is, uh, when you create a map, always ask yourself, will my audience know how to read this map? And second, what else is this map communicating? So thanks again to Click for sponsoring us this week. Um, check out the blog post. The link is in the show notes. And now back to the show. Can I move the discussion to one thing that I think is a bit of the elephant in the room, to me at least, is the topic <laughs> of diversity. Because I think there's like the first thing when we look at these studies about literacy is the first thing you realize is, wow, there's huge in- interpersonal differences in how people perceive charts um, how they react to them, how much they engage. And as you said, like the, the results can be all over the place. Like somebody might love one chart and hate the other one. And for the other person, it's the other way around, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how much do you think does that have to do maybe with that, the 
the people producing charts are from a specific like demographic and are specific types of people, like white male dudes in their thirties, like me. <laughs> and and maybe there's like a total lack of of sensitivity to the actual diversity of the audience. Just throwing that out there. What, what's your take on that? Well, I, I, I'll speak as a non-white male least, dude yeah. in my thirties. <laughs> um, you're, you're producing different kinds of visualizations, despite your similarities. Um, but I think it is all about diversity, and I think that is the real challenge for designers: is that audiences are diverse. And I think Andy came away from the project sort of at ease with the idea that you're never gonna appeal to everybody mm-hmm. you know that th- th- there's maybe a 50% max you know that you can you can inspire by visualizations but I, I in a way I think um some visualization research you know hasn't kind of acknowledged that point that the audiences exactly. are diverse and yeah. so what do we do with that yeah. and how can we um how can we kind of address that in the visualizations that we make. Yeah, and my feeling is that what is perceived as being intuitive or easy to read, you know, if you if you just ask your five friends who are like ex- doing exactly the same thing as you, uh, you you might get it wrong. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. Just the last point to make more, I mean obviously we had a smallish group, but we had a real diverse set of participants. Yeah. Um non-English speaking yeah, yeah, in their first true. language. Yeah. North, South, uh, artists, data people, non farmers. Uh, so we had, we deliberately tried to handpick very different groups to try and tease out those, those differences. Obviously not statistically large enough a sample to, to draw any conclusions from, but hopefully it helped to bring out the diversity of opinions raised. So I think maybe that's a good time to move to Jeremy a bit because Jeremy has been trying to measure uh, literacy formally, right? So um, I think I'm curious to hear from you. Maybe you can briefly introduce your work, what you've done, and and also talk about this problem of diversity because do you see diversity in, in your data and how do you handle that? Great question. <laughs> Sorry um, for the hard <laughs> question. <laughs> but no, yeah. So to talk about the work, um, I think the best kind of beginning question or introduction is the question you just asked before on the difference between um, being able to ex- directly immediately extract information from a chart and then being able to, you know, gain higher insights from the whole visualization or the whole um, infographic piece. And so what... Um, I studied was specifically, um, can people, um, extract information from common charts like bar charts, pie charts, and so on? Um, and are they confident about extracting this information? And, um, so what we did is we ran a series of studies with different, um, with different types of charts on Mechanical Turk. And what we found is that a lot of Turkers actually do have trouble um, just, you know, looking for simple things, actually, like finding averages and things like that. So what the in- interesting thing is that they are able to do it, but they're very, they're not confident. They really lack confidence. Um, and so, yeah, so for this question of diversity, um, I don't think we found anything specific in our results, like clear cuts between generations or between types of populations. Um, but then also maybe that our method wasn't most appropriate for that because we used 
um, item response theory, and it's hard to correlate back to um, like demographic data. So yeah. Yeah, and I think you told me so when when we started this project, I think the project stemmed from the fact that you realized that in previous studies there are many people who are actually not able to answer to any of the questions right, because yeah. they just don't know how to read the chart in the first place. Yeah, right? so that was the the initial motivation basically. We had run a couple of other studies with Jean-Daniel Fiquet, my supervisor at the time. And um, we had found that for even simple things, people were reacting very strangely. And um, <laughs> it sort of came to mind that maybe, hey, this is a big problem. They don't even know how to read these charts that we give them. And um, it turns out that, yeah, it is typically on Mechanical Turk. <laughs> yeah, I think what I, I, have, I haven't seen so far that would be really nice to assess is kind of like trying to understand what are the... The char those charts that most people do comprehend, right? Where, where do we draw the line, right? Is everyone able to extract information correctly from a bar chart? Well, actually, from your study, it looks like the answer is, is no, but I mean, that, which is uh, somewhat troublesome, right? <laughs> How much lower can we go, right? But, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And I remember some. Some years back, I remember people from New York Times mentioning that they would never use a scatter plot, at least for many years, because people just don't know how to read a simple scatter plot, right? And I think that's a very interesting problem because we have, on the one hand, probably a very large segment of the population who is not able to extract information from a bar chart correctly. And on the other hand, we have a, um, a substantial number of people who are producing a lot of really complex complex uh, visualizations out there. And of course, the result shouldn't be that we should stop doing complex visualizations. But um, I mean, I, I think we can clear, we can agree that there is some, some interesting problem there, right? Some, and, and some challenges. Some of the problems are about people's feelings about numbers, mm -hmm. I think, about data and about statistics, which inspire fear and anxiety in a lot of people. And that comes down to particular kind of cognitive, rational ways of teaching about statistics and statistical literacy um, that, you know, in my privileged position as an academic researcher, I, I might be able to kind of experiment with more novel and inventive ways of teaching statistical literacy. Then getting that sort of taken out into curricula would be a, mm. a big challenge, but at least we could learn whether different modes of introducing people to data yeah. and numbers and statistics might inspire more confidence, which then might make people more confident looking at um, a visualization. I, I really do think that the context matters as well. Um, there's a colleague here at um, Sheffield who I know did a study um, but it was in a sort of business context, in a kind of work dashboard context of which types of charts people could best extract information from. But to make it interesting for participants, he gamified it and you sort of got brownie points if you did it quickly. I, I think that you're going to get more error then. You know, I, our kind of sort of cozy way of here's an hour to look at eight visualizations actually inspired quite a lot of apparent understanding. And they were, we, you know, really quite diverse and some um, 
unknown chart types there. So I think if you say, you know, here's 50, do it quick and you'll get a star, um, or you say here's eight, take your time, no, there are no wrong answers here, you kind of get different results. Yeah, I, I wanted to come back on the question of confidence. So you're talking about confidence um, with numbers, but I think what we saw was confidence in your visual or perceptual system. Um, yeah. People could could kind of deal with the numbers, but they wouldn't necessarily trust their visual system for doing so. Um, and so there there are definitely these different things between yeah data literacy, I'd say, for you know the confidence with numbers, with um, trends, with things like this. Um, the confidence in your visual system, which will be visual literacy, maybe to some extent visualization literacy, and the connection between both, which I think is specifically mm, visualization yeah, literacy. Sure. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, just going back to the, um, the the starting point for me in my motivation for getting involved in this project was largely driven by my experiences on my training workshops with everyday people again but everyday people with, with perhaps an interest in visualization so not two everyday people but um and the fact is when we were discussing because a lot of the exercises i do involve reading and critically evaluating charts and a lot of the discussions i've always had with people is we don't get taught how to do this we don't get taught how to do this at school we don't get taught how to do it at university we get by through exposure we get by through practice and what we've tried to do in the project as one of the small outcomes of it is, or sorry, outputs of it, is an attempt to just give people a, a very simple reading strategy to, to help them make sense of a visualization more effectively, but also more efficiently, knowing that time and pressure is a, is a key dynamic of a situation. Because I'm, I'm sure we're all the same, even though we're very familiar with visualizations, when I first see something pop up, I'm straight into the content. I'm straight into the big and the small. I'm looking at the big flashy things. Mm. I don't just stop, take a breath, <laughs> read the introduction, read the title, <laughs> look at the axis scales. Yeah. And, it, and it's just like when you get a new new toy, a new tool, like a new phone, you don't read the manual. Right. Yeah. You just, you dive in, you yeah. play and you you make mistakes. And then you, and you complain that, that it doesn't work. And then you <laughs> complain that, yeah, why does this not work? So it's it's very... It's very boring to tell people to, to read it, to look very carefully through all these stages, but it will give them all the explanatory aids they need to have a better yeah. chance. But it's a, it's a, it's a shift in mindset and it needs to go back to education. So it's a bit like driving school, but for charts. Exactly. Yeah. There we go. I have another question. Um, I think this, I'm not good at maths feeling is, is a really crucial one that, you know, for some people it was like, Oh, it's a chart. Oh, I'm not good at that. Um, in your experience or your studies, do you feel you can say that metaphors help? Because it's a common intuition among designers that natural metaphors that present a good mental model of how to think about something or the use of analogies in teaching, right? Like an atom is like a so like a planetary system. Oh, it's not quite, yeah. but it helps in, in getting a few of the ideas across. Do these things help in your view or have you have you investigated that? We didn't really look at that, um, so I, I couldn't say anything general about our findings. So I think, as we've already noted, different visual styles appeal to different people differently. Um, so the flower metaphor on uh, uh, Better Life Index appealed 
to some people quite a lot actually i think there's quite a lot of mm. in the like square there um I mean, yeah, this, I, don't think, I don't know about Jeremy. We, um, but we also looked at the, we didn't do this in the focus groups, but we looked at the idea of kind of semiotic analysis of visualizations and, you know, and, and kind of look at the metaphors and the color connotations and things like this. And, and when the, whether they are intended or not is another matter, but it is something that we as readers or perceivers do process. And I was surprised, for example, that more people didn't quite get to grips with the stream graph. And I said, I suspect it's because they were looking for exact values. They were looking for very precise <laughs> readings rather than the general mm. sense as the title supposes of this seasonality, this ebb and flow. And I think sometimes I think we, maybe as a society, we're so consumed by a desire to look at detail that we, we struggle to have that relaxation of just saying, okay, a gist is fine. You know, you can't judge the size of the petals on the better life index flower with a degree of accuracy, but you get a sense of the big, the small, mm. the medium. You know, click away from the bar chart view, which gives you that extra degree of readability. But I think some people are so driven by need. I want the exact. I want the numbers. <laughs> I don't want the gist. I want the numbers. I'm, I'm surprised to hear that, Andy. I'm surprised to hear that. Mm. I, I think my sense is that most many people react um, emotionally to the aesthetics of side of of every visualization right mm -hmm. and when you have a colorful stream graph with i don't know bells and whistles um you have people say oh that that's a really cool chart <laughs> i love it right it's like and and, and then you see and it's uh, there are lots of problems there right so i think um, there's an entry point yeah, I, yeah, yeah absolutely but then i think you kind of push through that first 30 seconds or so when they're, when they're on board and then it's oh, then yeah, yeah, yeah. the so yeah. what, not yeah. the so I what question. I think maybe because it's, because it's a visualization of data, people might expect uh -huh. precision. But one of the really kind of powerful um, moments of learning about the role of emotions was um, after the focus group, we selected some people to keep a diary for a month of their everyday encounters with visualizations and we interviewed oh. them at the end of that period so nice. about five or six weeks after the focus group and we asked them if they could remember any of the numbers from the visualizations in the focus groups any of the actual data and they couldn't but they could remember the feeling you know i remember feeling surprised that that number was higher than i expected or that that number was really low and that seems to be the important message you know, that um, it's not remembering 2,471. It's, wow, that was surprisingly mm -hmm. high or, you know, th that was kind of troublingly low. That's, I think that's maybe the bigger picture aim here rather than communicating actual numbers, although those feelings are based on actual numbers. I, I think that's a very interesting point, Helen, that you raised here, because I see a, a tension between the way people actually process information out of visualizations and the way we um, design visualizations. So what I, what I want to say is that if you look at the, that little bit of theory that we have on how to design visualizations, quote unquote, properly, you would see that most of the guidelines are centered around the idea of effective channels, eff effectiveness, right? 
Um, but then what you what you find when you look at how people process information and what they remember is that they remember the gist of it, right? They remember the message. They don't remember what you just said. Yeah. They don't remember the number. They remember the message, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a comment that I find this uh, tension between this uh, or maybe mismatch between these two things. And I find it interesting. There's a lot still to research on the communicative side of data virtualization. I, I can I can attest that also here from the uh, workshop experience. Yeah. <laughs> from the yeah. workshop, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's yeah. so so much more. Yeah, Ellen, yes. Yeah, can I just follow? I think um, some of the themes that have come up in the discussion, like about diversity of audiences, about how. Um, you measure whether people can interpret um, data correctly from visualizations makes me want to plug the fact that following <laughs> on from the Seeing Data project, we've managed to get funding for three PhDs um, in the field of data visualization. That's great, yeah. One wow. is about visualization literacy. One is about sort of responding to diversity Excellent. when making visualizations yes, and one is about sort of measuring mm -hmm. effectiveness trying to take that talking mat that andy talked about and turn it into a widget that everyone can use to get some immediate feedback so i think andy's going to put a link on his visualizing data site yeah um unfortunately there are some conditions around who can access the full funding and who might be able to access a fees only funding so sadly it's not available to everybody but um you know i think we're all really interested in more research in all of these areas and this is opportunities for any listeners out there that might want to take up that chance that's, that's fantastic yeah i think my wrap-up point was just a sense that this project is certainly not the end it's uh no. it's whetted the appetite it's opened up a few ideas about what to look at next give us a few uh, give us a bit of a structure of the things to look at but yeah there's so so much more to to look into yeah and i have to say i'm glad to see that a few research papers on this topic are popping up i think last last year there was an interesting one at infovis on how people interpret visualizations they're not familiar with so that's that's an interesting one and so things are are developing and uh, i'm really curious to see what is going to happen and what we what new knowledge we are going to generate in the next few years i think that's that's a very very important topic um i just want to raise one last um um issue uh that i want to mention And, and it's about, I want to go back to the idea of being able to read charts correctly, because I believe that's, that's a super important point when we consider the problem of deception, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's so easy for, and, uh, I mean, Ellen, you said, uh, um, you said something like people just, um, very quickly look at a chart and, and extract a message out of it, right? And this is what happens most of the time in, in, in the real world, right? So the problem is, um, it's so easy to create even the most basic chart and in a way that people get the wrong message but still get this sense that whatever is presented there must be somewhat true because it's based on data, right? So again, we have another interesting um, dichotomy, right? Between the fact that 
people perceive anything that is based on data as the truth. And on the other side, it's so easy to mislead people <laughs> with even just the most basic chart, right? I don't know if you remember the Planned Parenthood one. It was just two lines, right? It's like, yeah. it's, it's crazy. At the same time, people think it must be not true because it's in the media. <laughs> that cancels you put each other both of those out. thoughts going that's, on at the same that's, time. That's, it must be really true because point. it's based on data and it must not be true because it's in the media and people manage to have those two contradictory thoughts at the same time. That, that's a very sure interesting angle. Maybe the next study should look at cognitive dissonance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. That, that was really fascinating. I'm really glad this type of research is happening. I can really say that. And I'm looking forward to read the report uh, we'll link to the there's a good summary of the results on on visualizingdata.com we'll link to that and any other resources and yeah thanks so much fascinating thank you. so maybe thank you. we should have you back in two years and see what the next stage of the research has brought <laughs> yeah absolutely. sure absolutely also from jeremy thanks, thanks so much for coming and uh, talk soon bye bye yeah bye. thank you bye, -bye. thanks bye Hey guys, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, we have a request. If you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. I also want to give you some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We are, of course, on Twitter at twitter.com slash datastories. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast, And we now also have a newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox, go to our homepage, datastory.es, and look for the link that you find on the right. One last thing I want to tell you is that we love to get in touch with our listeners, especially if you want to suggest way to improve the show, amazing people you want us to invite, or projects you want us to talk about. So do get in touch with us. That's all for now. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Data Stories. Data Stories is brought to you by Click, who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. That's Q-L-I-K dot D-E slash data stories.